Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm pleased to welcome Amy Jill Levine and Mark Brettler to the program today to talk about the Jewish Annotated New Testament. Mark Brettler is the Bernice and Morton Lerner Professor of Jewish Studies at Duke University's Department of Religious Studies. He's published widely on the Bible on topics including metaphor, the nature of biblical historical texts, and gender issues. His many books include The Jewish Study Bible, which he co-edited with Adele Berlin, How to Read the Jewish Bible, The Bible and the Believer, How to Read the Bible Critically and Religiously, and The Creation of History in Ancient Israel, among many others. Amy Jill Levine is University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies, and Mary Jane Worthen Professor of Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School and the College of Arts and Sciences. She's also an affiliated professor at the Center for the Study of Jewish-Christian Relations at Cambridge, and she's taught at the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome. AJ's books include The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus, The Meaning of the Bible, What the Jewish Scriptures and the Christian Old Testament Can Teach Us, co-authored with Douglas Knight, The New Testament Methods and Meanings, co-authored with Warren Carter, Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi, Entering the Passion of Jesus, and, most recently, The Gospel of Luke, co-authored with Ben Witherington III. Mark and A.J., as two tremendously prolific scholars of the Jewish Bible and the New Testament, have deep knowledge of the historical context of the New Testament, as well as of how it has been interpreted over the centuries. Together, they edited the Jewish Annotated New Testament in 2011, and they subsequently produced a second expanded edition in 2017. The Jewish Annotated New Testament has four main components. First, the text of the New Testament itself, using the New Revised Standard Version translation. Second, an introduction to the Gospels and Acts and to the Epistles and Revelation. Third, introductions to each of the books and extensive annotations to the texts. And finally, there are over 50 essays on topics including the historical and social context of the New Testament, Jewish religious movements of the Second Temple period, Jewish practices and beliefs, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, and Jewish responses to Jesus of Nazareth, Paul of Tarsus, and Mary the mother of Jesus throughout the centuries. The Jewish Annotated New Testament, as we'll discuss, highlights the historical and religious context of the New Testament as a set of Jewish texts, that is to say, texts written about Jews and in many cases by people who were themselves Jews, knowledgeable in Jewish theological traditions and textual interpretation. Throughout history, too many people have forgotten or consciously ignored that Jesus was a Jew, as were all of his first followers, or they've sought to instrumentalize this history for polemical purposes. There has been, of course, a great deal of serious scholarship on the New Testament over the centuries, but the New Testament has also been at the center of sometimes violent debates between Jews and Christians too. It thus represents a particularly interesting, though sometimes problematic text, especially when we keep in mind 
that several passages have prompted dangerous anti-Jewish stereotypes and narratives at the heart of centuries of animosity. At the same time, one can point to the changing dynamics of Jewish-Christian relations, especially after the Holocaust, in part through Christians as individuals and as church communities and communions, trying to come to terms both with what the New Testament says about Jews and how those texts have been interpreted. In a certain way, part of what I think is so interesting about the Jewish annotated New Testament is that it is very much a product of our time, a synthesis of the newest academic scholarship, first of all, and it also represents the possibilities of Jewish-Christian relations today. With this history and context in mind, I think Mark and AJ have done something remarkable to present the New Testament in a scholarly, readable, and accessible format for Jews without any kind of aim of proselytizing. Indeed, they are both themselves Jews. It's also a valuable resource for Christians and indeed for any readers who will want to better understand these texts and their historical and social context, and especially for religious leaders who want to be able to better understand and teach about Judaism, Jesus, his followers, and Christian origins in the first and early second centuries of the Common Era. The annotations and essays distill generations of scholarship on the background and meaning of these texts, their contexts, and their reception and ramifications. When necessary, they confront those passages that have been a source for anti-Judaism, and as a result, the book prevents a useful resource for students, scholars, as well as teachers and religious leaders. In situating the New Testament within its historical context, the volume demonstrates how and why the New Testament matters in terms of our understanding of the development of Judaism in the first and second centuries, and also why and how this context is critical in terms of comprehending the emergence of early Christianity and the parting of the ways between Christianity and Judaism. If you enjoy this episode, I hope that you'll share it with a friend. You can find the show notes and a transcript of the episode at jewishhistory.fm slash New Testament. Thanks for listening in to our conversation today with Amy Jill Levine and Mark Brettler about this volume, The Jewish Annotated New Testament, what it means to have a Jewish version of the New Testament, how we can effectively understand the New Testament within its historical and social context, and why all this matters in terms of scholarly developments, as well as the relationship between Judaism and Christianity today. So hi, Mark. And hi, AJ. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be with you, Jason. It's a pleasure to join you as well. I was really glad to take a close look at this volume, and I'm really excited to discuss it in depth. Uh, I think that it really makes a, an important contribution in a number of ways. Where I think it might be useful for us to start is in terms of just thinking about what it means to have a Jewish version of the New Testament, so to speak. What does it mean to have uh, a, a version of the New Testament that is the Jewish annotated version, so to speak, and what did you want to achieve in producing one in terms of both scholarly terms uh, and also in terms of how the public approaches the New Testament as well? Uh, the volume, in some senses, is an accident. It is, in some ways, a follow-up of the Jewish Study Bible, which I co-edited with Adele Berlin. I enjoyed co-editing it a tremendous amount. And I was looking for a follow-up project. And I said, and I'm still not sure if I said this seriously or as a bit of a joke, 
to Donald Krauss, who's the executive Bible editor at Oxford University Press. I said to him, why don't, why don't we do a Jewish New Testament as a follow-up? And he thought about it, actually thought about it for a couple of years. And then he came back to me and said, yeah, the people at Oxford think that it's a great idea. But obviously, since your specialty is Hebrew Bible, you really will need to pair up with a scholar of the New Testament. And then he suggested working with A.J., and that's how the project started, as a follow-up from the Jewish Study Bible. And indeed, if you look at the two volumes next to each other, you'll see that they have very similar covers, and that is not an accident. That really does represent the way in which they belong together. The idea of a Jewish annotated New Testament fits in with other types of what might be considered niche Bibles. So there are Orthodox Christian study Bibles, Roman Catholic study Bibles, Evangelical study Bibles, African-American study Bibles. There's a GLBTQI study Bible. In that sense, the Jewish annotated New Testament is specifically targeted. On the other hand, we want this volume to reach more than just Jews. The New Testament is part of Jewish history, and we want Jews to be aware of that. Um, Jesus was Jewish, Paul was Jewish, the various Marys were all Jews. But we also want Christian readers to be aware of the Jewish context in which their movement took shape, and we want them to be aware as well of those select New Testament passages, which because of select interpretations gave rise to quite horrendous anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic views. Yes, yeah, so to pick up a bit more on what AJ is saying, since this all began by asking the question of what Jewish means in Jewish annotated New Testament, it does mean that the entire volume is by Jewish authors. It means that the two co-editors, AJ and I, are both Jewish. It means that it does have, as AJ just said, as one of its intended groups of readers, Jews. So a term that I use is that it also in part was an effort to create a safe New Testament that Jews would feel more comfortable reading because they would know that it was edited by Jews and that the contributors were Jews. And unlike other New Testaments, it did not start from a Christian theological position and was not intent on proselytizing people. And another aspect of its Jewishness, and I'll just phrase it a little bit differently than AJ just did, relates to this problematic term of Jewish background for the New Testament, where there are many different ways to study the New Testament. Uh, it certainly is a Greco-Roman book in some sense, and it also is a Jewish book. These are two not mutually exclusive ways of looking at the New Testament, and this particular volume focuses more than many other volumes on the so-called Jewish backgrounds of the New Testament, which is a term that I hope you'll return to. There are other so-called Jewish study Bibles out there, uh, but they're written by Messianic Jews, and what they're trying to do is attempt to convert Jews to Christianity. What we want to do is show enormous respect for the Christian tradition, but recognize it as something distinct from us. So our agenda is by no means an interest in proselytizing, although a number of Jews actually thought that's what we were doing. Right. I mean, that's that's interesting. Uh, the the idea of creating a, a version of the, of the New Testament that Jews might feel comfortable reading because they don't think that they are trying to be converted. So there you have, in a certain way, the major audience. But 
you know, did you not also hope that Christians would look at it as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, because many of us are sensitive to places where textual interpretation can lead into anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic views, in cases where we knew that texts had proven to be problems in the past in preaching or in teaching, we pulled out little gray boxes on things like the blood cry in Matthew chapter 27, his blood be on us and on our children, and said, listen, these texts have been used to harm Jews Be careful, oh dear Christians, when you preach and teach this, not to lead uh, your congregations or your students in such a way that you would inculcate or reinforce anti-Jewish attitudes. Yeah, and Jason, in the way in which you asked the question, you spoke of Jews as the major audience. They are a major audience, but they really are not the major audience. Jews are a significant audience. But Christians, who we're trying to help better understand the book that is so fundamental to the Christian religion, are a very significant and a major audience for us as well. And of course, we had to play a balancing act, because these are two different, by and large, uh, mutually exclusive audiences. I say by and large because AJ, a few moments ago, raised the issue of Messianic Jews, And each audience required different issues to be explicated or the same issue to be explicated from slightly different vantage points. We were also sensitive to the variety of Christian readers that we have, so that words that that might have a particular resonance within the Roman Catholic community would have a different resonance or a different understanding for, say, evangelical Protestants uh, or uh, a, a particular Baptist church or an Eastern Orthodox church. So we had to define terms across the board. Jews may have no clue what Eucharist means, and Christians would have different definitions So we have to put in a separate article on what Eucharist means, uh, sometimes called communion meals. We spend a lot of time defining terms so that Jews who would be familiar with terms like Shavuot or Yom Kippur, those needed to be defined for Christians. And um, uh, for Christians who would be familiar with terms like baptism, we needed to define those for Jews. Mm -hmm. You're talking about a, a very difficult and very delicate balancing act, reaching different audiences who don't always speak the same language. As well as who have different interests coming in. Um, Jews might be interested in origins of uh, anti-Judaism. They might be interested in what was Jewish life like at the time. Uh, For Christians, uh, and I work primarily within Christian context because I am a New Testament person uh, primarily, it seems to me that if one claims Jesus as Lord and Savior, one would want to know as much as possible about the place where he lived and the time when he lived and the people to whom he spoke. And all of that is is that Jewish setting. So we can enhance uh, Christian love of Jesus. At the same time, we can inform Jews about what is going on with Jesus of Nazareth and why is it that certain Jews are proclaiming him to be Lord and Savior. And at least when I did the first edition of the book, I was still teaching at Brandeis where the majority of students were Jewish. So in the same way that AJ had a Christian audience in front of her mind's eye, I had a largely Jewish audience. And of course, we've both been teaching for decades. So we're well aware that for the volume, we have the same issue that we have in any classroom. 
of a wide variety of people who are using the book for a wide variety of reasons. And we just try to be as sensitive to these different groups as we might be. To go back to kind of the, the, the initial question that I had posed about what does it mean to create a Jewish annotated New Testament? People, broadly speaking, don't always think about the New Testament as a Jewish book. It's the holy text of Christianity, you know, certainly not of Judaism, right? So what does it mean to create a Jewish version or a Jewish annotated version of a book that is not usually understood or placed within the context of ancient Judaism, but rather within the history of Christianity? It's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem in how, how we define define our terms. Um, the Christianity itself, but even that word suggests that there's a separate entity apart from Judaism called Christianity. You know, look, Jesus is Jewish and Paul is Jewish and, and Mary Magdalene is Jewish and Jane. They're all Jews. And, and there is no formal distinction between Judaism and Christianity as two quite separate entities. So what we have to do is reconfigure, in fact, the way we tend to think about how the New Testament functions within its own historical context, how it took shape in the first place. So to say the same thing a little bit differently, one of the major academic issues in the study of early Christianity is called defining the parting of the ways. When do you talk about Christianity as a separate entity than Judaism? Now, it's not important for us to go into the various answers here, but everybody agrees from a scholarly perspective that in the late first century, or even by and large the early second century, the period that we're talking about for the production of the New Testament, the ways had not yet parted. And one way of seeing this is that the word Christianus, the Greek word for Christian, appears only four times in the entirety of the New Testament. So clearly the people who are involved in writing this book do not see themselves as a separate religion, although the term gets quite cumbersome uh, when we're careful. We talk about this group as Christ-believing Jews. That's really what they are. Now, we both understand that this is something that's very surprising in different ways to members of the Jewish community and members of the Christian community. And we see part of our job in writing essays, in working on other people's annotations and essays, bringing this point home time after time again, because it simply is a true historical point that we think it's very important for readers on both sides of the divide to understand as well as possible. Three times in the New Testament, not four. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I, must, I must have an extra book. Right, I mean, you just increased the percentage exponentially. <laughs> yes. Right, right. Part of the, the challenge here uh, is the way in which the New Testament is understood by scholars in the way that is popularly perceived. Most people who are picking up uh, a copy of, uh, of this volume of the Jewish Annotated New Testament are not scholars, right? And so this fact that, that Jesus was a Jew, you know, all of his contemporaries who were involved in the Jesus movement were Jews, and that, that there was not yet quite this divide uh, between Judaism and Christianity, you know, for, for many years after the death of Jesus, you know, this is an idea that many Christians are engaging with, but that 
you know, is not always at the forefront of the discourse within Christian communities. Part of what's interesting about this volume is the way in which it's bringing, you know, what has been, you know, for many, many years, the scholarly approach to a much wider audience to thinking about the New Testament. Right. And we tried in the annotations not to sound too academic. We know when we speak to our undergraduate classes, for example, there are certain technical terms we tend to avoid because our students have no clue what we're talking about. For me, my ideal audience is my mother-in-law who was born in Williamsburg. She's smart, but she doesn't know anything about Jesus. So I figure if I can explain stuff to her in a way that makes sense to her, I will have accomplished my goal. And that's in part how we formulated some of our annotations. So it doesn't sound all highfalutin scholarly. You know, we're talking about the eschatological concerns regarding soteriology of the parousia. No, we talk in normal language that somebody can understand. And in doing this, coming back to the basic question, I think our readers, all readers, are very able to understand that it is originally a Jewish book that became the basis or a basis for Christian religion. Books that start as being central in one religion can become more central and differently interpreted in another religion. There's nothing terribly surprising about this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing that really interests me, uh, I'm very curious about what the reception has been. Clearly, in a certain way, there's been a positive reception uh, because you published a second edition. Uh, In particular, one thing that I saw was that recently um, the two of you had a visit with the Pope to talk about the book, actually. And so I'm curious, you know, sort of what the reception has been like and, and what the reception has been like from different communities thinking about just the contribution that the volume makes and, and how they how they receive it. Initially, it was perceived as controversial. And I must admit that I did not think it would be controversial. And maybe that was naive on my part. So soon after it was published, there was an article in the Washington Times that said as follows, annotated Bibles usually don't make headlines, but the Jewish annotated New Testament, the title alone is enough to provoke a spirited discussion, has created quite a stir. And the stir was really on both sides. And this really relates to the questions that you began with. Jews felt like, what are we doing? This is not a Jewish book. How could we even put the word Jewish in the same title as New Testament? And some Christians felt that we were taking, as Jews, we were taking back the New Testament and taking it away from the Christian community. Now, obviously, both of those positions were wrong. I think that the vast majority of readers understand why those positions were wrong. But still, there are some people who felt that way. And in fact, there were people who said as much even before the book was published, just based on the title. So there was some initial frustration. I think once people started to read it, they realized what it was trying to do. And it was felt to be much less controversial felt to be more important. I'll give AJ a chance to talk about the role that it's had within the Christian community. But I'll say within the Jewish community, one of the things that has been incredibly gratifying is any number of people have come to me and have said that 
as Jews, they're starting New Testament study groups. And in typical Jewish style, in Hevruta style, in paired learning, they're studying the text together. It clearly is beginning to have an impact on the Jewish community as Jews start to read it. Why don't we let A.J. talk about it from the Christian side, and then we'll come back to the question about the Pope. Um, It's being used across the Christian spectrum, from uh, evangelicals to liberal Protestants to Roman Catholics uh, to members of Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I get letters all the time from ministers or people involved in adult study groups based in churches as to how helpful the text has been. People are using it uh, within the Christian community also for personal devotions because they say it's pointing out to them material in their text that they had never noticed and never realized. So that on a personal level, on a congregational level, it enhances the meaning of the text for the individual Christian. At the same time, it prevents sermons from going down anti-Jewish tracks or sermons that had in the past used Judaism as a negative foil in order to make Jesus look all bright and shiny. And what we've made clear in this text is that Jesus is quite fascinating on his own, and one does not need a negative Jewish foil in order to make him look worthwhile. It's also done very well in classrooms including in seminaries and divinity schools, as a requisite book for, say, introduction to the New Testament. I think that's fabulous. Finally, I've been doing numerous clergy workshops. Uh, Clergy get copies of the Jewish Annotated, and then we go through the standard mistakes that Christian clergy have made about early Judaism, not because of bigotry, but because of ignorance. Fix those mistakes, uh, and then help Christian clergy see in a more profound and historically informed way just how interesting this ancient text is, how better to understand Jesus, how better to understand Paul. Because if we get the context wrong, we're going to get Jesus and Paul and the rest of those New Testament figures wrong as well. It is worth noting that the volume also has over 50 essays. To my mind, the most important essay is the one by A.J., which is called Bearing False Witness, Common Errors Made About Early Judaism, which attempts to correct many of those errors. And I think that this volume can really play a major role in how Christians understand the New Testament, especially if they start with that particular essay. Yeah, actually, I really want to talk about that essay, and I hope we'll come back to it. But I think that what you just brought up here as well is this important way in which a volume like like this one can play a role in dialogue between the various religious communities. And this brings me back to something that I mentioned before, you know, which is that I just found it so it's so interesting and fascinating about this idea that that you ended up having a meeting with the Pope to talk about the book. The program with the Pope was part of a, a longer program facilitated by the Gregorian University here in Rome. So not only did we get this special audience where we were able to present to him an autographed copy, uh, but we had a formal discussion extremely well attended on the importance of the Jewish annotated and, and that Rome has embraced this text is just phenomenal. The Pope was terrific. He, he told us it was an important book. He told us we needed to continue our work. He could not have been more gracious. But in the fact that he accepted this work and that we were invited to this special audience really does indicate that from the Vatican's perspective, 
they understand how important this particular work is, is a type of a stamp of approval, understanding the New Testament in its original setting as a Jewish book and understanding and appreciating the Judaism of both Jesus and the Judaism of Paul. And I hope that the fact that this was done in such a public way will be an encouragement for others within the Roman Catholic community and beyond to consider similar perspectives. I mean, it was only, you know, what, 50 years ago, the Roman Catholic Church officially, you know, decided that the Jews had not been, you know, the ones to murder Jesus, right? So it reflects kind of a sea change in a certain way, you know, the acceptance of this volume that really highlights the way in which people should read this text and without getting anti-Jewish views out of it. Right. And at the same time, they don't sacrifice the particulars of their own tradition. Uh, so the volume has enormous respect for the various doctrines that mark the churches, whether it's Trinitarianism or the idea of Jesus as both fully human and fully God. All of that stuff stays in place. And what we're able to do in some of the back essays is explain how those particular doctrines developed. So, you know, going back uh, to something that you said before, Mark, about the role of a volume like this in terms of dialogue. And one of the things that's that's very interesting to me is thinking about the way in which the Bible, you know, in all of its different forms and, you know, the Jewish Bible, the Christian Bible, and so on and so forth, uh, becomes a point of contact uh, between different groups of people, between, uh, you know, between Jews and Christians, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, and different cultures. You know, we just did the episode with uh, Robert Alter, uh, where we discussed his translation of the Tanakh, of the Jewish Bible. And you know, one of the things that we talked about in that interview was the way in which Bible translations over the centuries uh, have been points of uh, of cultural contact or inflection. And here, what's interesting when you look at the Jewish annotated New Testament is that it's also meant to be a point of cultural contact, but you chose to use the standard translation, the new revised standard version, the, the NRSV, uh, but with a new commentary and annotation to go alongside it. So, you know, when we look at this project of reframing and reinterpreting a text, what's the difference in your view between uh, using a commentary to do that and using a translation to do that project? Let me start with this one. I think both AJ and I are very practical people. Uh, we realize that no translation is perfect. And we realize that the NRSV is an imperfect translation. It has certain advantages. It was done by scholars. It was done by good scholars. It was done on the basis of the best Greek manuscripts that were available at that particular point by people who had studied the text carefully in Greek. That is not the case for all translations of the New Testament. It is more literal than paraphrastic. So all of those features helped make it be a useful starting point for this particular volume. We did think very, very briefly you know, no more than a quarter of a second of having people do their own translations or modify the NRSV translations for each of the books that they are writing on. Uh, had that been the case, the volume would not have been done yet because retranslating these books would have taken a tremendous amount of time. And then there would have been a tremendous amount of unevenness between the various New Testament books, 
because each person would have translated a book in her or his own way. So we really did need to start with the best standard Bible translation, and that was the NRSV. With that said, if you read almost every page, the authors of the annotations are suggesting ways in which the translation could be better or could be different, or there is a certain ambiguity in the Greek that they are bringing out. So this way we were able to be both practical and to highlight certain problems related to Bible translation. I mean, I'll just give you a quick example uh, where, where I think the NRSV gets it wrong. Um, the Epistle of James, which has probably the least amount of information about Jesus that, uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, in James chapter 2, uh, there's a reference that says, if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your, your gathering place, the, the NRSV translates that term as assembly, but the underlying Greek is actually synagogue which in the Gospels, whenever synagogue shows up, it's always synagogue. But why here do they translate assembly? So our annotators are able to say, wait a minute, the underlying Greek term here is synagogue, and this epistle may have been addressed to Jews who gather in synagogues, but they just happen to be Jews who are gathered in the name of Jesus. We need a translation that everybody agrees is a good translation, and at the same time we require annotations that will bring out particular Jewish nuances that may have been elided in the English translation. It's uh, you know very clear that the that the translation is not perfect, and no translation could be. Right, right. I mean, but but one of the things that that I find very interesting about the choice to use the NRSV, you know, has to do with you know not just the practicality, but also the possibilities for reception by using a standard translation. One of the side effects of that is that for the Christian audience who may already be familiar with this translation, it's a text that they already know. You're annotating it in a different way, but it's still the same text, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's also one where we could get copyright clearance. Yeah. Yeah. And because they know it well, are highlighting particular problems in the translation, I think is something especially important that we were able to do. I mean, one of the things that also is really interesting and this goes back to what it means to create a Jewish version of the New Testament, was that I think that when we think about what that means, I think that if we look at the history of modern Jewish studies, uh, kind of broadly speaking, from the 19th century onwards, you know, one of the contentious sets of issues was, you know, who does this tradition belong to? You know, this is the case of, uh, you know, looking at Jewish studies and the figures of Wissenschaft Studentums who were sort of pushing back, you know, this is the 1820s, they're pushing back against Christian scholars who they believed were taking a kind of a, a, a proselytizing approach to studying the Jews. You know, there's also all sorts of issues regarding uh, supersessionism and the way in which the Jewish tradition, you know, has been adopted, historically speaking, by Christians of, of you know, basically all kinds, you know, talking about sort of adopting the, you know, the Jewish tradition as the precursor to Christianity, uh, you know, you know, even when we look at biblical studies, uh, you know, people like Solomon Schachter, you know, others as well, uh, looked at you know, biblical criticism 
you know, as an attack on Judaism in certain ways. You know, he called it higher anti-Semitism. And all of this, I guess, is just a long way of saying that when we look at Jewish studies, uh, the history of Judaism, biblical studies as well, you know, there are a whole series of contentious debates about who this all belongs to. You know, the whole history of, uh, you know, the debates about the historical Jesus, you know, also fits into this as well. About all of this, it can become very contentious, especially when one group, you know, is studying the other. You know, so I'm curious how this, you know, fit into your own thinking about the Jewish annotated New Testament and your approach to creating a kind of a Jewish version of the New Testament. Uh, because I think that if we think about the development of Christian-Jewish relations over centuries and decades, you know, and, and that this can be produced today, this reflects very much our current moment. You know, I'm curious how the history of these kind of debates about the way in which one group studies the other affects the way in which you think about this idea of creating a quote-unquote Jewish version of the New Testament. The Jewish annotated New Testament is not the same thing as a Christian annotated Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament for the church or the Tanakh for the synagogue, and granted, these are different canonical orders with different books. Um, it, that stuff is shared material. And throughout the centuries, we have had, in effect, Christian annotations of the Old Testament. Mark? Yeah, we've had many of them. And it's all recently, almost all academic study of the Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament was really study of the Old Testament from a Christian perspective. We have had, in effect, Jewish annotated studies of Jesus and Jewish annotated studies of Paul since the Enlightenment. Some of them were apologetic. Some of them were polemical. Jews have pretty much always commented on material in the New Testament. What we wanted to do is do it not as an apologetic and not as a polemic, but as academics trying as best as we can to get a sense of the history and a sense of the literature. So this is a text that's not designed with some sort of ideological drive other than a concern for mutual respect and understanding. And we're really going back to Wissenschaftes Judenzums because Abraham Geiger, who was one of the founders of that movement, wrote very significantly on the New Testament. It is true that we are the first people to edit a complete Jewish annotated New Testament. But various books, such as the book of Matthew, have been looked at by uh, Jewish scholars of previous eras. If you look at the essays in the back, and being a little bit simplistic here, there was serious Jewish interest in the New Testament for a long period of time. Uh, the Holocaust, the Shoah, the destruction of Eastern, near destruction of Eastern European Jewry, it made people extremely suspicious of Christianity. And then the Jews really pulled back from that for a while, with some exceptions. I guess the greatest exception in the United States was Samuel Sandmill in the middle or the second part of the 20th century. And then as a result of real changes in the understanding of rabbinic texts, in the understanding of how universities were structured, I think something that we did not talk about yet is how remarkable it is that AJ as a Jew is teaching in a Protestant divinity school all of those changes 
culminated in the production of the Jewish annotated New Testament. And again, part of the way in which you phrased the question suggested that we have a zero-sum game, that either Christians talk about the New Testament from a Christian's perspective, or Jews talk about the New Testament from a Jewish perspective. I don't think that either of us sees this as a zero-sum game. But the opening up of, of Christians, um, less with Eastern Orthodoxy, but certainly within Roman Catholicism and the various Protestant movements toward listening to Jewish scholars over the past couple of decades has really been remarkable. A number of our commentators do teach in predominantly Protestant divinity schools. That that openness needs to be appreciated. And, and I think it also fits with the earlier scripture material. Jews who study what Mark studies primarily, who study Genesis or who study Isaiah, certainly read Christian commentaries. And Christians who study this material generally read works by Jews. So why not move that, that mutual respect up into New Testament materials as well? Jews have been publishing academically on the New Testament. Sam Sandmel is the best example here from the 1960s. But even before that, Joseph Klausner in Israel writing on Jesus of Nazareth. So we're part of a much longer tradition of Jews studying the New Testament than some listeners may be aware of. I mean, I think one of the questions here then is when you put yourself within this long tradition of Jews studying and writing about the New Testament, what is new here? Are you just in a certain way synthesizing the scholarship of the past 100 or 150 years? Asking what's new is like going up to your average academic and saying, gee, um, have you come up with a new idea or are you just repeating stuff that was said 100 years ago? Sorry. I mean, I didn't mean to imply that. but (laughs) One would hope that we would come up with something new. So to some extent, we're repeating stuff that we have learned from our teachers. But the different focus gives rise to new insight. The package is different. The emphases are different. We're looking uh, not only at literature contemporaneous with the New Testament, be it the Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, Philo, text from the Pseudepigrapha, and even archaeological information. But we're also looking at rabbinic literature, not as background, but to say, gee, how have Jews within traditional Jewish commentaries address some of the same issues that are being addressed in the New Testament. Uh, This is new, and it's fabulous. Yeah, and a lot of what is new, which should not be downplayed, is having all of this material available in a single volume, and having it all available in two different ways, by which I mean in the annotations and in the large number of essays in a single volume. That's simply never been done before and never been done in a way which attempts to be so accessible. I mean, I think the accessibility is 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 critical. I mean, when you look even at the essays, right, and you think about who wrote each of those essays, many of them are a distillation of the monograph that that person wrote on the topic. And what we have here is an entire library of scholarship on ancient Judaism, on early Christianity, on the New Testament, boiled down into a single volume that somebody can pick up and and flip through. And that is, I think, a really phenomenal thing to have as a resource. Thank you. Um, well, you're welcome. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like we've talked a lot about the book, but I want to look maybe a little bit at the, because I think one of the interesting things that you do in the 
uh, you know, in it is it's not just the annotations, it's the introductions to each of the uh, each of the books of the New Testament. And you know, this is really useful for people who are you know getting a sense of the text who are not familiar with it, and also who perhaps want to answer similar kinds of questions about each of the texts, about you know, who the author was, you know, what the context was, and so on and so forth. Each of these different texts also presents different challenges and opportunities. How did you try to contextualize the New Testament passages and discourses? I mean, how did you contextualize these different books and these different passages differently, you know, depending on you know, what each of them are doing? You know, in particular, you know, when we look at ones that have been a source of anti-Jewish hatred or misinformation you know, and sentiment about the Jews, how did you approach this, this project of contextualizing and annotating the New Testament you know, on the book-by-book level and also about looking at different passages? Well, we don't, we don't apologize for texts and we don't explain them away. And in some cases, our annotators simply said, this is anti-Jewish material. We can posit what the historical circumstances were that gave rise to that material. But we also have to deal with it in terms of how we understand it. By the same view, there's material in the shared scripture that say anti-Canaanite or anti-Egyptian or anti-Persian or anti-Babylonian. This is what religious texts do, and we need to be aware of the problem. We are aware of the fact that for many of the readers, this is the first time that they're reading the New Testament or reading it in a serious manner. So we did make general recommendations to, to our authors about what they should include in their introductions, issues such as the authorship, interpretation of the text, uh, when and where it was written. And as AJ just said, different New Testament texts require different sorts of introductions. From the perspective of anti-Judaism, the most problematic gospel is the Gospel of John. So it is no surprise that Adele Reinhardt, as part of her introduction, has a whole section on John and anti-Judaism. So we're aware of the fact that for all of our readers, this is or should be a significant issue. So unlike many other introductory New Testament volumes, we probably do concentrate on those issues a little bit more, both in the introduction and in particular annotations. But we try to do so in a non-apologetic There are problematic passages in the New Testament, as there are problematic passages in the Hebrew Bible. And we discuss that, I hope, in a fair fair fashion. I mean, were there any particular challenges? You know, when we look especially at books like the Book of John, when we we think about the source of anti-Judaism over the course of many, many centuries, were there any particular challenges that you've that you faced, you know, how did you try to resolve them when you looked at these these texts that, you know, or passages that had a particular anti-Jewish bent or or approach? Well, I don't think resolve is the right word. I don't think you can resolve something that's anti-Jewish. I think you have to name it. You can explain it as best as you can, but it still remains a problem. Um, In the same way, we don't resolve, say, uh, slavery in the United States. We can explain how it happened and why it was perpetuated, but you don't resolve the question. You, You bring it to light. You flag the tragedies that it has caused, uh, and then you ideally find some way of saying, uh, I need to acknowledge this as part of my history, and then I move on. 
Yeah. So I would use the phrase, call it out, rather than resolve it. So to give a very specific example, because you asked the question about John, one of the most problematic verses is John chapter 8, verse 44. You are from your father, you're the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now that is a highly problematic verse, which Adele Reinhardt calls out in her annotation and says, I quote, This verse is the source of the association of the Jews with Satan that remains prevalent in anti-Semitic discourse. See introduction. And I very much hope that readers of this volume will not only read that particular sentence, which calls out this verse, and she phrased it very carefully, not as anti-Semitic, because that would have been inaccurate, but rather as a source for anti-Semitism. And then I would hope that people would go to the page that she has that deals with John and anti-Judaism and explains how a Jewish person can write these particular notions, which became the source for anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. Yeah, I mean, I think that that this is a fundamental challenge. The, the flip side of this as well uh, is that, that, that when you are putting the New Testament within its historical context and in terms of its particular elements, which are the source of anti-Judaism, there are other texts which are much more Jewish, so to speak. You know, so for instance, looking at Matthew as kind of the counterpoint to John, you know, this is the most Jewish, so to speak, of the four Gospels. So I think one of the things that you guys do there, which is very interesting, is that you know, in addition to calling out the sources of anti-Judaism, but also you're really emphasizing the ways in which there is this connection between Judaism and Christianity in terms of the the way in which Jesus is portrayed and the way in which also the different contexts of the different authors might lead them to have different approaches towards Judaism. We have to be very careful here because we actually, for the Gospels at least, are not clear on what the context is. The Gospel writers do not begin their text by saying, hi, my name is and I live at such and such a place and here's my background, my ethnicity, my community, and here's what my mother's name was. Part of doing gospel study is a bit of a circular argument. We read the text, we posit the author and the audience on the basis of the text we've read, and then we interpret the text on the basis of this audience and author we've just posited. We talk about Matthew as a very Jewish gospel because it sounds to us Jewish, and then we have to figure out what does it mean to sound Jewish. But we also know that Matthew was the most popular gospel among Gentile followers of Jesus in the second and third centuries. So even when we talk about Jewish gospel, that itself is a controversial comment. But nevertheless, just to explain a little bit, it sounds so Jewish because of the extent to which it quotes from the scriptures of Israel or the incipient Hebrew Bible and the manner in which it quotes, which is very similar from the manner that is attested in Dead Sea Scroll documents that are more or less contemporaneous with the New Testament, 
and in later rabbinic documents. So that's what I think makes Jews who have some knowledge of this material much more comfortable with Matthew than they do with the other Gospels. I do think Matthew, is, Matthew the author, uh, is coming out of some sort of Jewish context, because Matthew, the author, not only knows the scriptures of Israel very well, but also knows post-biblical interpretation that we find in other Jewish non-Christian sources. But that doesn't tell me to whom Matthew was writing. We don't know whether Matthew was writing to some small enclave of other Jewish followers of Jesus, or Matthew was writing to what might be called the, the ecclesia universal, the assemblies in the name of Jesus across the board. It would not surprise me that Matthew had Gentiles substantially in mind as the audience. Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing to think about here, you know, I think that when we think about the project of annotating and contextualizing these New Testament texts, there are a series of different contexts that we can think about. There's the historical context of the authors, right, who they were. Uh, it may not be possible to really know exactly who they were, but you know what their historical environment was like, you know who they were likely trying to write for. We can also talk about contextualizing the passages themselves, how they relate to the other contemporary texts of the time, and also to uh, to the Tanakh and to the Old Testament, you know, to the. Uh, Septuagint you know, and other sort of versions of the Bible. Part of what, what I would like to hear you guys say a bit more about is why does this context matter? Why is it so important to put the New Testament and these texts you know, within all of these various contexts? The context when it comes to any literature is actually not necessary for comprehension. I mean, we can understand a novel uh, without knowing a whole lot about the historical background. It's just that we understand it so much better if we know where and when and to whom it was written. Shakespeare can be understood by folks today, but if you know a little bit more about history at the time, it's a whole lot more profound. Uh, my friend Ben Witherington, who's a, who's a Methodist um, biblical scholar, is wont to say that a text without a context is just a pretext for making it say anything you want. Uh, and with the Bible, that's certainly the case. So people will open up the text and they will say, here's what it means to me. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but if they knew what it meant to the people who first heard it, uh, they would be able to enhance mm -hmm. their own reading. And that's why context mm -hmm. is important. Um, okay, so I think maybe I want to shift gears a little bit. So I guess one thing that I, I'm really interested in is the way in which the Jewish annotated New Testament relates to and differs from other New Testament study Bibles. One of the key differences is that the Jewish annotated New Testament does not include the Old Testament, right? That's one of the key differences, but also putting it in terms of this different kind of a context that you're doing it from a Jewish perspective. What would you say are the major ways in which the Jewish annotated New Testament relates to and is different from other Christian study Bibles that have the, the New Testament as the core of the text? Uh, and why do you think that these differences matter? It is the only annotated New Testament that seriously considers names and describes the full Jewish context of, of the New Testament. It is the only one that adduces later rabbinic material, and not simply by citation of text, but also quoting the text itself, because we don't presume that people would have, say, a copy of the Mishnah or a copy of the Talmud at hand. It is the only text that flags issues where anti-Jewish interpretation has been a problem. Uh, it is the only text that 
welcomes Jewish readers by explaining Christian terms that Christians themselves would be familiar with. It is the only text that provides data on Jewish festivals, on the Jewish history of the period, on Jewish reception of this material, and so on. And part of why we're able to do this is most other annotated New Testaments are not stand-alone annotated New Testaments, but the annotations there are part of the larger Christian Bible. And because of limitations in space, such New Testaments can only be several hundred pages long because you have to include the entire Old Testament or Hebrew Bible in that single volume. So this sounds like a very simple technical issue, but it has lots of implications. This is a stand-alone annotated New Testament, and as such, we really have the room to do all of the things that we think are very important that AJ just mentioned. And also, proportionately, our annotations are able to be longer and thus to include much more information and different types of information than the typical annotations in other New Testaments found in complete uh, biblical study Bibles. Not to mention all the back essays. Yeah. I mean, that's actually a great segue because I wanted to talk about some of these essays. And we obviously can't discuss all of them, but I was hoping that we could discuss the two essays that both of you wrote. Mark, you wrote your essay uh, you know, about the relationship of the New Testament with the Tanakh, as well as with rabbinic literature. And so I'm curious if you maybe want to say a few words about what it is that you think that we gain from putting the New, the New Testament within this literary context. I think that many Jews, when they approach Judaism, have an understanding that the rabbinic period immediately follows the biblical period. That you go from the biblical period to the rabbinic period to the medieval period to the Renaissance to the Enlightenment to the modern period. And historically, that is not true. The latest book of the Bible is probably, I'm sorry, the latest book of the Hebrew Bible or Tanakh is probably the book of Daniel from the second pre-Christian century. The Mishnah is codified, let's say, very early in the third post-Christian century. So that leaves us with over 300 years of a blank. And in order to understand the progression of Jewish history, of Jewish ideas properly, we need to fill in that material or fill in that period between the Hebrew Bible and the rabbinic period. And the New Testament is one of the most central ways of doing that. Again, there are other sources. There's Philo of Alexandria. There's Josephus. There are various Dead Sea Scrolls. There are some books from the Apocrypha and some of the Pseudepigrapha. But arguably, the most important way of filling in that material is through the New Testament. So in that sense, what I'm really trying to show in my essay is how the New Testament period and the New Testament itself functions as a bridge. Again, I'm not saying the bridge, but functions as a bridge between the biblical period and the rabbinic period. And as such, because I do consider myself to be a historian, and I'm interested as a historian in how ideas change over time. 
you having the New Testament as a resource for seeing how these ideas change over time in this intermediary period is very important for me. And that was really the focus of that essay, because then you see that the rabbinic period is not something that is totally new and revolutionary, but that many of the things that you have in the rabbinic period are already seen in some form already in the New Testament itself. I think part of this whole project of of looking at the New Testament as a Jewish book, so to speak, is to think about how it is one data point or a set of data points that we have in terms of understanding the development of rabbinic Judaism, of, of Judaism in late antiquity. If we think about this period of 300, 400 years, if we had nothing from the year you know, 1600 to 2000, well, you know, how will we understand that? I think that when we look at the ancient period, and I say this as a modern historian, you know, there are so many gaps that the more that we have to study and to learn from, um, we can gain a lot from it. I mean, I was also hoping that, that AJ, you maybe wanted to say something about your essay as well, because I think that, you know, if we look at what Mark is dealing with, right, this is a literary project, right, this is dealing with the history, you know, I think that part of what you're engaging with in your essay on errors and misconceptions about early Judaism, you know, has a really profound impact, not just in terms of historical knowledge, but also in terms of a real world impact, because of the way in which the New Testament is interpreted and reinterpreted and perhaps sometimes misinterpreted by many people who gain you know, false understanding of Jews and Judaism from it. You know, as you put it, many Christian religious leaders, and I'll just quote from the essay, you, know, you say that they, that they often, quote, strip Jesus and Paul from their Jewish context and depict that context in false and noxious stereotypes. You know, so I think what I'm wondering is uh, when you look at this long list of misperceptions, which you detail in this essay, why do you think that these misperceptions arise out of the text itself? And why do you think that these persist over the centuries and even sometimes to the present? Sure. Well, that's like asking why stereotypes exist. Um, I, I have a list of 10. Um, if I had more word, a higher word count, I'd have a list of 20 or 30 or 40. Uh, problems continue to be perpetuated. And every year, there's a new problem that pops up where somebody gets the context wrong. Why do these things happen? They happen for several reasons. For example, um, they happen because for a number of people, Jesus has to be the Savior, and he saves not only to eternal life and he saves from sin, but he's, he's the, the poster child for social justice. So what a number of Christian readers do is they say, well, if Jesus comes to tell us what justice means, then he must be correcting something that's wrong in his Jewish context. And consequently, Jesus becomes the, the inventor of feminism amid a first century Judaism that epitomizes misogyny. Or Jesus invents pacifism amid a Judaism, which is all about militarism and violence. Or Jesus invents universalism amid a Judaism, which is xenophobic. Or Jesus cares about health care uh, amid a Judaism where if you're sick, you're, you're looked at as sinful. And all of these are just incorrect stereotypes designed to make Jesus look good and designed to promote justice. Liberation theology, which I personally like because I like the idea of using the Bible to diagnose political issues, uses this negative trope of Judaism fairly frequently because it's a very easy way of making your justice case. In other cases, because of modern stereotypes of Judaism, for example, that Jews are somehow interested in controlling the world and all Jews are rich, you know, we should be so lucky. Transpose those modern nationalistic anti-Semitic stereotypes from the 19th century on up back into the world of the New Testament and read their text accordingly. 
And in other cases, people will take certain verses in the New Testament quite literally and conclude that, well, because Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites, then all Jews are hypocritical. Or because Jesus calls the Pharisees lovers of money, which is a standard invective in antiquity, that therefore Jews are all interested in lovers of money. Uh, Or because Jesus complains about uh, some Jews who are concerned about uh, external practice rather than internal repentance, that therefore all Jews qua Nietzsche are interested in materialism and externalism and can only parrot but have no creative aspect. So we've had 2,000 years worth of negative stereotypes about Jews and Judaism. It's not surprising that those get read back into the New Testament Uh, And because some of them actually derive from interpretations of the New Testament, there's a feedback loop that continues. Uh, I think the major reason the stereotypes continue is because in a number of cases, people can't even hear them. They simply take them as normative Uh, in the same way that when I was a kid, when we children were acting in a rambunctious manner, my mother would call out, stop acting like wild Indians. I mean, today that sounds horribly racist, and it is. But back in the late 50s and early 60s, nobody recognized the racism. So when I flag these errors that people make, I am not accusing them of being anti-Semites. In fact, I don't think they are. Uh, The problem is that they don't hear their own negative stereotyping. But the cool thing is once it's pointed out to them, they do. Uh, and most of them are able to self-correct after that. Right. I mean, I think it's interesting because it brings me to sort of the final essay at the end of the book, which is this essay by Ed Kessler, which deals with the New Testament and Christian Jewish relations. You know, specifically, you know, he deals with three areas dealing with supersessionism, anti-Jewish teachings, and then the, the the ongoing development of Jewish-Christian dialogue. And I think that when we you know look at your essay, for instance, uh, AJ, you know about you know misperceptions, misunderstandings that I think that you're hoping that this volume will help to correct. In what ways do you think that this volume of the Jewish annotated New Testament? can contribute to the development of Christian-Jewish relations today as well as into the future? We gave a lot of thought to the order of the essays, and having that essay as the final essay is very intentional. In some ways, it overlaps a little bit with AJ's essay and drives some of the points that she just made home in a slightly different way. Uh, One of the things that I think Ed Kessler emphasizes is just how important it is to be honest about what these texts do, and that there are supersessionist texts within the New Testament, and we need to call them out. Uh, That doesn't mean we should follow them. That doesn't mean we can justify them. Perhaps we can explain them and should explain them within a historical context. But we need to call out these problematic texts for what they are. Something else that that particular essay does is it really traces Jewish-Christian relations in a particular historical context. So it begins with the distant past, it then moves to the near past, and it ends in some hopeful hopes for the future. We're doing this podcast a few days after a woman was murdered in a synagogue right outside of San Diego by a white supremacist. So it is difficult to be hopeful all the time. 
Uh, and I think we really do need to recognize that despite our best efforts at letting people realize that certain texts are problematic and have been the cause for anti-Semitism, they can and should be read and dealt with differently. So we have problems. We need to recognize these problems. But both of us, alongside people like Ed Kessler, who are working very vigorously toward better Jewish-Christian relations, are working very hard at making all communities aware of the problems that exist and really building toward a more hopeful future. There's also a correction that we hope this text can provide on the other side. Um, I've heard from numerous Jews that, that Christianity is nonsense, that it's a pagan religion, that it's a misunderstanding of Judaism, that it's it has nothing to do with ethics, it has only to do with belief, and, and all sorts of other negative stereotypes about Christian origins and Christian practice and belief. So in the same way that we're interested in correcting Christian misunderstandings of Judaism— we're also interested in correcting Jewish misunderstandings of Christianity. Uh, there's, there's enough bigotry to go around. Uh, everybody has baggage. And if this volume can continue to allow Jews and Christians to have better understandings of each other, and through understanding usually comes respect, that's all to the good. Well, thank you. This has been really interesting. Thanks for taking the time for this really, really interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of Jewish History Matters with Mark Brettler and Amy Jill Levine about the Jewish Annotated New Testament. If you want to check out the show notes at jewishhistory.fm slash New Testament, you can find links to some of the items and topics we talked about today. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.